Hey, South Loop, good morning. If we can, let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. If we have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kenson Lamb and I serve as a pastor here at Park Community Church, specifically our Bridgeport location. Uh, really grateful to be able to spend this morning with you opening up God's Word. You know, as you're opening up to Romans 13, I just want to let you know that today we're jumping back into our message series, into Romans that we started last year. And Romans is all about the gospel. As the author, the Apostle Paul states in Romans 1.16, which acts as the thesis of Romans, says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is not just words. It is the power of God. It's a power that saves us, sustains us, transforms us, and secures us for all eternity. The gospel is not the ABCs of our faith. It is the A to Z of our faith. So as a church, we've already covered the first half of Romans in which Paul expounds on the content of the gospel. In the second half of Romans, Paul's going to show us how the gospel practically changes our lives. That now through the righteousness of Christ, we have a right standing with God. We are given new hearts so that we can live new lives. It changes the way we think, our relationship to others, those in the church, those outside the church, and even our enemies. And for today, we're going to jump ahead in our chapters and go to Romans 13 and see how the gospel changes our relationship to the government. And the reason we're doing this is because November 3rd is fast approaching, and we want to biblically equip you to engage these very challenging times. So with that, let's read our verses and jump in. Romans 13. Verses 1 through 10. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor whom honor is owed. Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, and the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nothing divides us more than politics. 
In a city as diverse as Chicago, with so many backgrounds, experiences, cultures, education, blue-collar, white-collar, immigrant, black, white, yellow, brown, it's not surprising that we can be divided over politics. Issues like the economy, immigration, abortion, marriage, universal health care, prison and, and, and police reform, racial injustices, women's rights. Depending on your position, you can be polarized into a political party. And even with face masks, that if you wear one, you're for one political party, and if you don't wear one, you're for another political party. Nothing divides us more than politics. You know, I became extremely aware of this in the 2016 elections. You know, that Sunday following the elections, the emotion was so thick in the church. There was so much grief and fear. So as a church, we chose to speak into the discouragement in the room and offer assurance from God's word. But there were also many who were angry with the church because they couldn't understand why we weren't celebrating the results. They couldn't understand why people were scared and fearful. This was the best thing that's ever happened. Do you see? Within even our church seats, you had some folks who wanted to celebrate and sing the roof off, and you also had people who wanted to cry and lament. Nothing divides us more than politics. And what has happened is that we have allowed the hate from that division to bleed into the church. That we look down on each other. We scream at one another. We call each other names. Racial tensions have been at an all-time high. And the church has been caught up in all of this. You know, today we're in a section of Romans where Paul teaches on God's purpose for government. And thus our posture towards the government. Notice that Paul in these verses expects us to civically engage. Verse 1, be subject to the government. Verse 3, be a good citizen. Verse 7, pay what is owed, give honor and respect. An error that we can make as Christ followers is to think that we have no responsibility or involvement in politics. That it's fine to let the world burn and I'll just wait for the second coming of Jesus. No, it, it doesn't work that way. Jesus prays in John 17, 15. He doesn't say, God, would you please take my followers, my believers out of this world? Instead, in John 17, 15, Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We are not to run from the issues of the city, from the country, or, or even the world, but we are to engage with the love and hope of Christ. In addition, if we are to love our neighbor, care for the voiceless and the most vulnerable, our involvement is inevitable because so much of our government and its policies impacts these lives. In the book of Jeremiah, the nation of Israel is being held captive by the Babylonians, and God doesn't tell them to run away or to resist them. Instead, he tells them to love the city, make it better, plant trees, raise your family. They were called and we are called to live in and make this culture better. So instead of being divided as a church, we should be united in one mission to bring a powerful gospel witness to our city, to our country, and to to our world. Pleading ignorance and embracing passiveness in these matters is being unfaithful to Scripture. You know, in our, for our sermon today, 
Uh, I'm going to start at the end of our verses, and then next week, Pastor Rafe's going to work us towards the top end of our verses. And what we're going to talk about here today is that we're going to talk about our posture towards one another in politics. And next week, we'll talk about God's purpose for government. And the reason we're doing it this way is because before we build a robust theology around government, if we fail to understand the division in our churches and the lack of love that we have for one another, our theology means nothing, nothing at all. This November, your candidate will win or lose depending on how the country votes. However, the witness of the church will win or lose based on our behavior from now and then. So the question I want us to answer is this. Why does politics divide us? Why does politics divide us? Two reasons from our, from our verses. First, it's because we worship a political party and not God. And secondly, it's because we're consumed with fear and not love. So here's, here's the first point. We're divided because we worship wrongly. Look at verses 6 to 7 here. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, some context here. In verse 1, the Apostle Paul teaches that the government has been instituted by God. What that means is that God is the source of all rule. No one on this earth would have any authority if God was not the one who gave it. And because it is God who gives authority, he will also be the one to ultimately hold all of those in authority. So we should care about government because it's an extension of God's authority and rule. This is why Paul says in verse 6, For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. Taxes should be paid, as hard as it is to hear here in Chicago, but taxes should be paid because it supports the government. Why? Because they are ministers of God. The word minister is where we get the word deacon or servant. And in verse 4, Paul says two times in that one verse that the government is God's servant. Notice here that Paul is not anti-government. He's not anti-political. And neither should we. Because he understood that God makes his authority and his mercy visible through government and through human authorities for the common good. This is also why we should give respect and honor to those in authority. Even if that authority is not worthy of much respect, it's because we respect the ultimate one behind that authority who is God. You know, next week, Pastor Rafe will help us address in more detail what do we do with evil and unjust government. So I gave him all the hard stuff to do here today. But for the purpose of our message, this is the point that we need to remember. The source of all authority and government is from God. And thus we're to support with our taxes and we're also to support with our respect and honor. But this is the problem. With our culture and churches, Instead of extending respect and honor, we idolize and worship 
Specifically, here in America, we equate one form of government or even one country with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this party is God's party. This country is God's country. And what we begin to do is root our identity in a political party. Thus, if you support a different candidate than me or a different political party, you have become an enemy or you've become a child of the devil. Or seriously, you can't be someone of faith and integrity because you support that party. Church, we cannot fall into that trap. It is unwise and foolish to give our affections and loyalties to any poor party or candidate because all of them are imperfect and fallen because they are all led by imperfect and fallen people. No party perfectly follows the way of Jesus. And for us to do so, to completely and unquestionably give our allegiance to one party will require us to compromise in the gospel in some way. Because when you look at both our parties, they will always focus on some sins and not on other sins. You know, Tim Keller, pastor in New York, gave this insight about the five distinctives, the five elements that made the early church so unique and compelling to the world. He gave five. First, he said that the early church was known as a multi-ethnic and multicultural community. Second, they were known as a community that was generous and cared for the poor and sick and needy. Third, it was a community that was not combative, but always forgiving. Fourthly, it was a community that was against abortion, that believers were literally picking up babies off the road and adopting them. And fifthly, it was a community that was sexually countercultural, that they believed that the only place for healthy sexuality was between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Now notice in those five elements, those five distinctives, that the first two around diversity and generosity It sounds like liberal values. And then the last two, with abortion and sexuality, that sounds like conservative values. And then the third value of being a forgiving community, no party is practicing that. Do you see? Christianity cannot comfortably fit into any category or political party. To blindly worship one party over another is to ignore significant aspects of our faith. You know, a way to discern if this has happened to you is to ask yourself, are you willing to evaluate and critique your own politics before critiquing others? Now, I'm not asking you to change political sides here, political parties, but if Jesus is your king and your citizenship is in heaven, you need to be willing to filter your politics through scripture and not to make the mistake of first establishing your political position and then finding random Bible verses to support it. Any one of us can go ahead and twist what Jesus said to make it support our political platform or policies. How do you think slavery was justified? It was by taking verses out of context and ignoring other verses in the Bible. To be a faithful believer during a divided election season means that we have to hold all our political leanings with an open hand and to filter it with the gospel. Are you willing to evaluate and reevaluate your politics in light of what Jesus teaches? Many Christians are not willing to do this. And this will divide us because we will put politics first in our churches and make God second. 
our loyalties can never fall on any party, but only to Jesus Christ. That before we are citizens of this country, we are first and foremost a citizen of a greater kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And that is our highest citizenship. So as heavenly citizens living in an earthly kingdom, we are to represent God's will, God's way, God's glory, God's truth, God's morality, God's values. As a church, we are never to unite around a political party or a country or a form of government or a flag. We unify around the lordship of Jesus Christ, period, full stop. Here's the second point. We're divided because we're consumed with fear and not love. Verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to spend more time working through these verses in depth. But what I want to show you is, first off, in verses 1 through 7, Paul teaches that government is good, authority is good, law is good, because God is behind it all, and the government is a servant of God. But now in verses 8 to 10, he tells us that as good as government is, and authority is, and as law is, love is better than all of that. Now, the law Paul is talking about here is the Old Testament law. So he's not talking about laws in Chicago, the speed limits and so forth. But there is an important overlap in the laws here between governmental laws and God's law. For example, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not give false testimony. That is laws in the Bible, but that's also the laws of our land. Paul tells us here that it is love that ultimately fulfills the law. Paul quotes here from Leviticus 19, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Paul's logic is so simple here. He is simply saying that when you love your neighbor, you're not going to kill them. When you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. When you love your neighbor, you're not going to covet from them. Instead, you will sacrifice for them. You will care for them as you would care for yourself. Thus, when we love one another, when we love our neighbor, we are naturally fulfilling the law. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. And where do we find the power to love our neighbors? It's from experiencing the love of God ourselves. As Jesus said in the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your strength, heart, soul, and mind. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. When you have the love of God, it will always express itself in a love for others, in a love for your neighbor. And the reason we can do this is because we trust God. We trust him to provide for us, to secure us, to care for us, to protect us, and to be just. So we can live out in this world with great generosity towards others when we live out by faith, knowing that God is going to take care of us and watch over us. But the opposite is equally true. When we lose sight of our sovereign and loving and providential God, our hearts will not be filled with hope and faith. It will be filled with fear. It will be filled with fear because we'll be asking the question, who then will take care of me? Who then will watch out for me? 
So instead of trusting in God, we'll be trusting in other false saviors like a donkey or elephant. This is why nothing divides like politics because nothing divides like fear. Now, what exactly do we fear? It's the fear of something being taken away, a loss of control, a loss of opportunity, a loss of freedom, a loss of the future for my kids, you know, a loss of progress to all that's been made, that if you vote for this person, they'll take your guns away, or they'll take your money away, or they'll take your religious freedoms away, or they'll take away law and order, or if you vote for this candidate, it'll be the end of America. Both sides peddle in fear, and when we fall victim to this fear, our church will be divided because fear does not make us selfless, but selfish. Fear will make us trust more in political power and human power than on God's power to rule and reign and transform. Fear makes us short-sighted and we miss the eternal perspective of Jesus returning in glory and power. And this fear will hurt our witness to the world because instead of seeing what, who we are for, they will only see what we are against. Nothing divides like politics because nothing divides like fear. But there is good news. God's perfect love for us casts out fear. You know, 1 John 4.18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love Cast out fear. It's in the gospel we see the perfect love of our King Jesus who loves us by serving us. That this is not a king who powers up all over us, but this is a king who gives up his power for us. That he defeats death by his own death so that we can have eternal life with him. That he is a king who provides for us from the riches of his grace. That he will bring about a kingdom that will be one of righteousness, joy, and everlasting peace. And it's in this king and it's in this kingdom that we hope in. Because governments come and go, nations rise and fall, political parties change all the time. That even in America's short history, how many Whigs or Federalists do we have out there right now? Right? How many do we have out there? Why would we ever place our hope in something so fleeting? Why would we, as followers of an eternal king, allow ourselves to be divided by lesser kings and queens? We must not allow any party, any candidate, any rhetoric to divide us with fear because it's in King Jesus. He offers a power that is unstoppable, a justice that is perfect, a mercy that is lavish, and a peace that is eternal. The great news of the kingdom is that King Jesus is not a donkey or an elephant. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Nothing divides the church like politics, but nothing unites the church like the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what's some application for us? Let me give you two applications here. First, look for an opportunity to love someone unconditionally who might disagree with you politically. Now, some of you might say, well, I don't know if if I know anyone who disagrees with me politically. Well, that's a problem. This might be why you're so convinced that you're always, always right. Find someone you disagree with politically and serve and love them. And know that when you do that, the church is going to shine a lot brighter because of how divided we are right now. 
that as believers, we should model civil discourse. We need to be able to voice opinions and perspectives without canceling each other. We need to assume the best and not the worst from one another. In our verses, notice how the passage on government is sandwiched in love. That we've already seen verses 8 and 10 and how much it talks about love. But also notice chapter 12 and the end of it. Chapter 12 verse 9, let love be genuine. 12 verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Chapter 12 verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Chapter 12 verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Chapter 12 verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Notice here that that how important the ethic of love is before the teaching on government and after the teaching on government. And what this should be telling you is that what you believe about politics and the way that you talk about politics is just as important as how you treat those that you disagree with and how you treat them with or without love. To strive for unity in these conversations is to do so with love. Now, this is not a unity that says that we, have, that we all have to intellectually agree on everything. On this side of heaven, that's not going to happen. The unity that we are striving for is a relational unity built around our faith. It's remembering that there is more that unites us than divides us. It's remembering that before you're a Republican or Democrat, you are first a brother and sister in Christ. It's to remember that there's a difference between biblical principles and governing policies. That with biblical principles, we are to never, ever compromise on biblical principles. But how it gets applied in our society, we can disagree on that stuff, but we don't have to divide over it. You know, for example, immigration. The Bible speaks a ton about the immigrant. And let me just give you one verse of many in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 to 19. He, God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God here loves the immigrant and provides for them. And if God loves them, so should we. There is no debate here. And if you have any disagreement, don't take it up with me. Take it up with God and his word. It says it right there. Now, the challenge we have is how do we best apply this today? Deuteronomy 10 was written during a different historical context. And the Bible doesn't speak about the process of what this should look like or how many we should let in each year. And this is where Christians can healthily disagree and have conversations that are edifying, loving, and proactive in working towards honoring God best. And we should be able to do this with any topic, like universal health care, the death penalty, social security, public education, and so forth. If we can't have these kinds of conversations in the church, where else can we have them? Here's the second and final application. Pray for unity. Pray for unity. In John chapter 17, hours before Jesus was going to be murdered, he makes a prayer for his followers. And it's a very surprising prayer because Jesus knew that their future was going to be very hard, that the disciples would be arrested, flogged, beaten up. Many of them would be murdered and killed. Jesus knows all of this because he's God. But as Jesus prays for their protection, he never, ever prays 
for their physical protection. Instead, he prays for something way more important to him. He prays for their unity and oneness. John 17, 21. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays this prayer because he knew that if the church stayed united, no matter what, no matter what came before them, the world will change because they would see a Savior who truly does save, who truly does reconcile, who truly does redeem, who truly does transform, who truly reigns above all. A Savior that is greater than any political allegiance. But if the church ever got divided, it would stall. It would stall. The unity and diversity of the early church shocked and intrigued the ancient world. Ours should as well. It's one of the most powerful witnesses of Jesus to a world divided by politics. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you that it is Jesus Christ who reigns on high, who sits on his throne unquestioned. That Father, 2,000 years ago, that he lived the life that we can never live, died the death that we deserve, and he resurrected and ascended and is now sitting at the right hand. Father, how amazing that is, that that is our king, that he is the one that we follow. He's the one that we give our allegiance to. He is the one that we bank our lives on. Father, would you protect us, Lord, from all the fear that's being peddled out there, for all the division, all the name-calling, all the hate that's being promoted on both sides of the political parties. But God, help us, Lord, to be the third way. Not Republican, not Democrat, but as Christ followers to represent and to show your way, the gospel. Father, help us to be a faithful presence in such a divided time. Lord, give us great conviction, boldness, and courage to speak truth into matters, but Father, to also do so with great grace, gentleness, and kindness. Because Father, that's exactly how you treated us. So Father, we pray, Lord, that during this time, in the next couple of weeks before the election season happens, that Father, that the watching world would be able to see from the church they got that we have a greater king that we worship, that there is a greater king that we follow. And his name is Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we respond by giving our God praise. Let's